Welcome to another episode of the Hoop Talk Podcast by fans for fans. I'm Ryan. There's my guy, Jalen. What's up, everybody? This podcast is where we discuss all things basketball. So expect a lot of hot takes, debates, and a true display of basketball knowledge. Let's get right into it. Our topic today is reacting to the first two rounds of the NCAA tournament. And what a crazy first two rounds it was, Jalen. A lot of upsets, a lot of big performances, a lot of great matchups that we saw. We're just going to go through the entire tournament and just discuss all these upsets, performances, and matchups. Because, again, there's there, there's so much to talk about with this NCAA tournament, and a lot has happened in this tournament. And, Jalen, let's just kick things off. What were some of your initial thoughts uh, from this tournament? Yeah, man, so I think my initial thoughts – we're just like, man, what a weekend. Like one of the more intriguing things that we talked about this off camera was like everybody's bracket was broken in the first weekend. And like, I understand March Madness is nuts, but I don't think we've really had such a crazy, unexpected first weekend like this one. And I think with a lot of the upsets that we've had, it really just goes to put in perspective just not how crazy March is in general for college basketball, but it kind of further emphasizes that any given Sunday mentality that basketball can have in an environment like these, you know, the NBA slogan, you know, is always like focuses on like the big shot, you know, and that is what March Madness really is all about, man. I mean, it, this is one of those years, bro, where I just feel like even with some of the top seeds still hanging around, I just don't know who to pick as a favorite anymore. I mean, Arizona, Gonzaga is still around. Duke is still around. But it's like, bro, is anybody safe? You know what I mean? I don't think anybody in this Sweet 16 is safe. And I think that probably is just what goes to show you how how crazy this tournament has already been Jalen. i'm going to be honest with you when i first made my final four i then realized three of my final four teams were eliminated this past weekend <laughs> my final four originally was duke iowa tennessee and kentucky kentucky lost to a 15 seed yeah tennessee lost to a michigan team that i did not think was going to make the tournament mm-hmm. and iowa got upset by a very good richmond team so there's that. There were a lot of upsets, more than I would have expected for this for this NCAA tournament. I know last year's was pandemonium completely, but then you look at this year's, and Iowa State and Miami are playing in the Sweet 16. St. Peter's, who is a 15 seed, the team that I referred to earlier, knocking off Kentucky, they're playing in the Sweet 16 against Purdue. A team that before the tournament, Jalen, you and I were not completely sold on Mm-mm. as a NCAA championship winning team. Right. Not a great defensive team, but they came out and they performed very well against, against Yale in the first round. Great game against Texas in that second round. I think that, that this is a team that could be for real in Purdue. The fact that going back to St. Peter's as well, St. Peter's is the third 15 seed to make it to the Sweet 16. St. Peter's, there's something different about this team. They're not like the other two 
Sweet 16, the the uh, other two 15 seed teams that made it to the Sweet 16. There's just, I feel like Doug Eddard is a player that I think can make a huge impact against Purdue. He's made a lot of threes in the past couple of games. There's just this determination from Coach Shaheen Holloway, too, that he really thinks that this team can make it all the way. I definitely give them a chance to beat Purdue. Yeah, and we'll get to, like, the specific – we're actually going to get into, like, the region-by-region stuff in a second. I want to bring up something with St. Peter's a little bit later on that I want to get your thoughts on. In terms of them against Purdue, of course, when we preview the the uh, the Sweet 16, because I agree with you. I do think something is a little bit different about them in comparison to those, those other two 15Cs that made the Sweet 16. And I think that that difference – that X factor, again, we'll talk about it a little bit later. That X factor, I think, might be the big difference and might actually propel them over Purdue. I haven't really decided on who I want to pick in that game yet. Um, but if I had to say it right now as we're starting the pot, I actually, scarily enough, might lean with St. Peter's. But we'll talk about it a little bit later. Um, let's start with the Western. Let's start with the West region. So, we're going to kind of like freestyle each of these groups. So forgive us in advance if we kind of are all over the place. But guess what? This whole tournament was all over the place. So we're kind of just going to we're kind of just going to rock with the punches that are thrown. So, Ryan, the first question I want to ask you about the West region is what are any upsets or performances that stood out to you that you feel like are noteworthy? Not only just in terms of maybe a season ending for a team or uh, but also a the the projections moving forward for teams that are still in the mix well first of all Jalen I've been pushing so hard for Davidson in this tournament (laughs) boy was I disappointed oh yeah (laughs) I I was I was pushing so hard for them Jalen I said this is the team to beat in any given scenario this Davidson team is going to be this team they lose by one to Michigan State. Now, granted, Michigan State's a great team, right. have a lot of size. They have great players like Marcus Bingham and Gabe Brown. Max Christie is for real in this NCAA tournament, even just throughout the season. I think he definitely, if he wanted to go forward in the draft, he could. He definitely boosted up his draft stock with his with these couple of games. Just looking at a couple of performances on the Davidson end of, of things, Hyungjin Lee was held to just 11 points on 4 of 11 shooting. Foster Lawyer was held to 12 points. He shot three of nine from the field. Those were the two main players I thought were going to make a pretty good impact in that game. And then you look at players like Luka Brashkovich for Davidson as well. He had an 18-point game, shot the ball pretty well. It just seemed like a couple extra buckets could have put this team ahead of Michigan State. And I give this Davidson team a lot of credit because they fought really hard to get to this point. But yeah, that that's a really tough loss. I think for, for me leaning so heavily on Davidson being an upset sleeper pick throughout this tournament, I think that definitely backfired as well. But just looking at the West region overall, not a lot of surprises. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, you look at Gonzaga, they defeated, Georgia State in the first round. It was definitely tough because they were only up by two at halftime in that game. So that was an interesting one. Duke beating Cal State Fullerton seemed like it was a predictable win. 
you look at New Mexico and Connecticut, I think that's a really interesting one too, because Teddy Allen, 37 points in that game. But just looking at the first round overall, it seemed like a lot of the teams that we thought were going to win did end up winning. Gonzaga, Duke, Texas Tech, Arkansas, all pulled off wins. Yeah, I think the only thing that probably stood out to me, obviously, is UConn losing, obviously, is a big standout. And oddly enough, I'm not as shaken up about Notre Dame getting that win against Alabama as I think most would. Maybe last year that would have rocked the rock the the rock the boat a little bit more considering just how elite offensively especially shooting the three ball last year Alabama was but it just seemed without like without Herb Jones most specifically but they they lost a handful of guys but especially without Herb Jones and that defensive identity that he helped carve for them last season it just felt like a completely different Alabama team this year and Notre Dame was coming in with I mean, all the juice, right? I mean, they were coming in probably feeling the best of most teams entering this tournament. So that honestly didn't hit as crazily as it could have. One of the bigger things about this region that I think is really notable, too, is just that a lot of the games that took place, they happened in a lot of like they happened in a lot of interesting manners where, like, for example, I think that Gonzaga versus Memphis game in the second round. I think people anticipated that to be a close game. And I think, I mean, some were on the bandwagon of Memphis maybe being able to upset upset Gonzaga. I think that game was extremely close and a lot closer than I think people would have anticipated if you were simply going off the talent-to-talent ratio. Um, And Chet Holmgren didn't even even have a really good game in that game. And he's the guy who, for their team, is projected to be a a top-three pick. Um. Arkansas, who's been a really solid offensive team, got into a defensive slugout with New Mexico State and came out with essentially a five-point victory when they're, I mean, it was noted in the first game against uh, against Vermont, 75-71. to This is a team that knows how to put up points. New Mexico State as well. And ironically enough, somehow it turned into a defensive, uh, a defensive match. I think the intriguing thing moving forward, and even even let me let me bring something up too, that Michigan State versus Davidson loss you brought up earlier. Davidson somehow shot one less three than Michigan State, which is just interesting because Davidson is one of the better three point shooting teams in the country coming into the tournament. Michigan State only shot like twenty seven percent from three, but Joey Hauser was just too good, like. Individually, Joey Hauser was just too good, and that's what really helped propel them. So when you look at it, there was a lot of interesting I – mean, you know, we're going to talk about this throughout the entire tournament, but in this bracket specifically, there were a lot of contrast between the round one and round two in a way that kind of showed kind of like what teams can adapt and which teams couldn't. And I thought that was really interesting. So I want to touch on something you mentioned with Chet Holmgren. A little bit, too. I thought he had a phenomenal first round game. But in the second round against Memphis, he went up against Jalen Duran and the matchup didn't seem to go in his favor. Now, I want to kind of bring up something that we mentioned off pod and and talk about it on here. Okay. Chet Holmgren reminds me a lot of Giannis from his rookie year. He definitely is really athletic. He has a he has a strong defensive acumen. But he he's not the biggest guy out there. 
I want to let you, Jalen, explain something a little bit that we mentioned off pod. You said that he kind of reminds you of a mixture between Giannis and Kevin Garnett. I want you to touch on that a little bit more. So I want by touching on that, I want to make sure that I explain this in a way that people understand. I didn't mean that in a hyperbolic kind of way, like from a talent standpoint, he could be Giannis or Kevin Garnett. That's not necessarily what I meant. What I mean when I talk about Chet Holmgren in comparison to those guys is more so around his his frame not necessarily being detrimental to his potential translation at the next level. If you look at the way the NBA is trans- transitioning, you have guys like Draymond Green at 6'6", 6'7", playing the center position long term. There's this idea of small ball now, right? And Chet Holmgren is a guy who, yes, if he runs into Giannis or if he runs into Joel Embiid or somebody that is very, Anthony Davis, that is physical on the low block at the center position, of course, from a defensive standpoint, that's going to be going to be much more difficult for him with his current frame. But similar to Giannis and similar to Kevin Garnett, now Giannis is a, is a kind of a different story because he put on the kind of weight and physicality, physicality to fit a kind of frame that matches his play style. Kevin Garnett never actually put on any kind of significant weight and never was the the bulkiest guy, but played with this level of grown man strength that's made him significantly impactful on the defensive end, despite not being the most stout guy. And I think that's where Kevin, I think that, excuse me, I think that's where Chet Holmgren can kind of forge a path for himself is similar to KG and kind of even similar to like Slim Shaq, right? And again, I don't want to get hyperbolic with these with these comparisons in terms of how they'll go. It's more so just what could translate. Chet can put the ball on the floor. He has a decent handle. He has very good instincts as a shot blocker. And that same Memphis game you're talking about, he had five personal fouls, which led everybody in the game. I will admit that. But he also had four blocks, which shows you the defensive intensity is there around the glass as a rim defender. He's a guy who can shoot the three. He hasn't been super efficient this year from shooting beyond the arc, but he's a guy who showed the capability to step out there. And if you're a center in today's NBA that can step up beyond the arc and be a legitimate threat of any kind, you're in a position where you are going to get time on the floor and be an effective player. Another guy that he gets a lot of compensate, uh, a lot of comps to is, of course, the Christoph Porzingis comp. But the thing I would say with that is, if he's Christoph Porzingis, he has the potential to be everything that we saw for Christoph after that, that all-star season he had in New York without the question marks. Because he's as rail thin as Christoph was when he came into the NBA and has not had nearly the kind of injury history that Christoph had in his first two seasons entering the NBA, right? Everybody still had all of that enthusiasm about Kristaps, despite the fact that in his first season, he got injured and was out for the rest of the season. And in the second season, bursted onto the scene, really made himself effective, and then had that all-star, that all-star season. So I think Chet Holmgren, especially if you eliminate the injury concerns that we had to worry about with a guy like Kristaps, 
at your worst, Chet is just everything Kristaps has been without the injury concern. And that's still an all-star caliber player. So I think the interesting thing about it is that overall, Chet is a guy who can impact. Chet is a guy who can impact a game on both sides of the floor, whether he drops 25 and 11 or has nine with five blocks, right? And that's how I see. I see that as a guy who has a significant upside translatable to NBA play in today's league. Sorry for the long rant, but there's a lot of people who have hated on Chet Holmgren's overall game because he doesn't come off as dominant as a as a seven footer in the in the uh, in the college game. But he's a guy that has a lot of translatable skill sets that will will hit day one in the NBA. And the reason why I wanted to bring that up was because of that matchup between. Gonzaga and Memphis. He was matched up a lot with Jalen Duran, and he did not win a lot of those one-on-one contests. There was actually a moment in the game where Jalen Duran hit a spin move and dunked on Chet Holmgren, and Chet got called for a flop warning. So that was something that was was very interesting, and I think you have to credit Memphis for continually attacking Chet Holmgren because he had five fouls and. It could have turned the tide in those late stages of the game, but Gonzaga was able to hold their own thanks to guys like Nemhard and Timmy, who showed out, by the way, in the second half of that game. Timmy actually entered the second half with four points and ended up uh, finishing with, I think, 25 points. He had a phenomenal second half. But it was really interesting that I brought that up because of the, the draft comparisons, too. With, with who I think he looks more like. I think he looks more like Giannis from his rookie year, and you actually brought up a good point with Kevin Garnett because I think even though he's not the biggest guy on the floor, he can still hold his own out there. Exactly. Strong defensive, like I said, strong defensive acumen. He's athletic. He can hit threes. He's a mixture of the 90s big man and today's big man. Mm. I think that's the best way that I could put it. But I also want to touch a little bit more on New Mexico and Arkansas, New Mexico State and Arkansas, because I actually touched on this in the game of the day predictions that I do on Instagram and TikTok. Mm. This was a battle between two defensive sluggers. Yeah. And I know Teddy Allen was not as big in this game as he was in the game against UConn, but Arkansas was able to contain him pretty well throughout the game. Jalen Williams, I thought, had a pretty good game on the defensive end. There wasn't really anybody on the offensive side that stood out for either team, but I think you just have to credit Eric Musselman and the defensive schemes that he drew up for Arkansas. I know Aldis Tony had an 18-point game, but he had to really work for those shots, 5 of 18 from the floor. Jalen Williams, like I said, I think he would have had a great defensive game, put up a double-double with 10 points and 15 rebounds, 13 on the defensive end but he had to work really hard for those buckets too. He shot three of 10 from the field. So I think a defensive slugfest is the best way that I could put it. With yeah, that and matchup. I, yeah. And I think something else that was like really interesting from like Arkansas standpoint, right. Is like Devonte Davis played a lot of minutes. He played 34 minutes for this team and Trey Wade starts for them, but he was barely on the floor. One of the bigger things that I think was really important though, is like, Arkansas's ability to go small really helped them in terms of the perimeter play against New Mexico State because they're a team that 
like, I mean, you can just look at it from the way things went. They will really chuck the three ball. If you look at the comparisons, Arkansas took 16 threes while New Mexico State took 26. They're, this was a defensive battle, but this is a New Mexico State team that loves to put the ball in the basket at a high clip, mainly doing it from beyond the arc. So I think the main thing that's really important is Arkansas's ability to go smaller, match up well, and cover that three-point line and hold New Mexico State to 23% shooting from beyond the arc. That is a real testament to their defensive capabilities. And J.D. Note fouled out of this game. You know what I mean? Which is another thing that's notable. Granted, it was one of those things that within the framework of when he fouled out, it didn't have a significant impact on the, the, the result of the game, I would say. But I still think it is an important thing to note is that this this is one of those this is one of those defensive matchups, especially for an Arkansas team that we know can score, right? Especially with JD Note leading the way, an Arkansas team that we know can score for them to be able to hunker down and hang in in a defensive slugfest shows their versatility, and that that's going to be something that's really important. When you talk about what they need to do in this next round, because they got Gonzaga and they are going to have to be able to hang between bigs, smalls, because Gonzaga has it from everywhere. And I know everybody points the finger at Chet, but Nimhart is no joke, right? I think that obviously Drew Timmy is not by anybody that you can sleep on by any means. And the, the sneaky dude, the sneaky dude, I'm going to bring him up now, man. Bolton is a dude. Bolton is a real guy for them. Rasir Bolton and Julian Strother are going to be unsung heroes on this run for, for Gonzaga if they make it all the way to the, to the championship round and win the whole dang thing. But I think Arkansas, they really showed us a little something, something in those first two rounds by being able to go from a purely offensive game against Vermont that got in the 70s to then converting to a defensive game against another offensive-led program and be able to sit down and have a defensive matchup with them and come out with the win. I think that tells me a lot about what the Razorbacks might be able to do moving forward. I think the other thing to watch out for, Jalen, and I mentioned with this with the Memphis matchup, how are they going to attack Chet Holmgren? Mm. Because I think you put Jalen Williams down low against Chet Holmgren, that's another battle that I think can go Jalen Williams' way. And I think that's going to be really tough, especially considering that Chet Holmgren fouled out in the last game mm. when he was facing a bigger guy, Jalen Duren. I'm interested to see how this matchup bears with, with Jalen Williams because I know they're going to try to attack Chet Holmgren down low again. And I think this will definitely give NBA, uh, NBA scouts a good idea of how he holds it, how Chet Holmgren holds his own in these types of matchups. Yeah, so before we, like, move on to the next region, I think we should kind of, like, wrap this region up with a bow by going to the Sweet 16 matchups real quick. So we do have Gonzaga versus Arkansas, and we have Texas Tech versus Duke. We haven't talked about Texas Tech or Duke very much so far, mainly because they kind of just handle business as expected. So before we move on to the East region, Let's go ahead and pick our pick our winners for these games, but also kind of explain some things that we want to keep an eye out on. You already mentioned some things when talking about Gonzaga and Arkansas. 
Yeah, so I did mention a couple of things with Gonzaga and Ar- Arkansas. I think the guard matchups are going to be interesting too. Nemhard had a great game against Memphis. He really was able to take over in the in the second half against Memphis. JD Note, like you mentioned, he got in foul trouble, so we didn't see much of him, but we saw a lot of Aldis Tony. And I think the matchup between Nemhard and Tony, this could be just a pure scoring battle between these two. I'm going to go with Gonzaga on this one. I think this is another one where it could come down to the wire, much like the Memphis matchup. And we could be in a situation where, much like that game against Memphis for Gonzaga, Chet Holmgren fouls out. And we could be in a situation where, much like New Mexico State, J.D. Nate fouls out. So I think it could come down to one of these one of their top players fouling out. Yeah, I think that I think I'm gonna go with I think I'm gonna go with Gonzaga as well, mainly because on the podcast I picked them to go all the way. I had Kentucky in a lot of brackets though, but I picked Gonzaga to go all the way on uh the podcast, and that means they would have to get past Arkansas. But man, that's gonna be a toughie. Ryan, the one I want to get your thoughts on because we talked about this a lot off pod. And this is the one that I think might be a little controversial, depending on who you're rooting for. We got Texas Tech versus Duke. Duke survived Michigan State, the team that they actually lost to, if you remember. But Tom Izzo knows a little something, something about beating Duke, like Ace said on our episode previewing this. And they were able to come out that one with a big victory. But Texas Tech is a real hunker-down defensive team. And I don't know if Duke's seen the kind of physicality on the defensive end that Texas Tech has that has brought and is bringing. I don't think Duke has seen anything like that all season, even with running into teams like Gonzaga earlier in the season. So what are your thoughts on the Duke versus Texas Tech matchup and who are you taking? So I think Texas Tech is one of the top defensive teams in the country. But they also have guys who can rebound. They have guys who can slash. I mean, you look at Terrence Shannon, even though he didn't have that good of a game against Notre Dame, he's one of those guys that will take charge and go into the paint and try to get a bucket. Kevin O'Banner and Bryson Williams, two great front court players for this team. They're going to be physical down low. This is a team in Texas Tech that prides itself on drawing contact and trying to get to the line. Mm-hmm. This is a team that's, like I said, they're a physical team down low. I think that's going to be really tough for Duke, especially with with the the battle down low between Bryson Williams and Mark Williams mm-hmm. down low. I think Mark Williams has a lot of potential to continue to grow, but I think this is going to be another tough test for this Duke front court because we saw against Michigan State, they held their own throughout the game, and then – after a couple of missed shots for Michigan State, that's when the lead for Duke started to grow. This is a game also that I think Paulo Bencaro can solidify himself as the number one overall pick. This is a top defensive team. I think the big thing for Bencaro is how often he can get open looks, much like the, the point I made with all these Tony. He has to show us why he's the number one overall pick or why he's capable of being a number one overall pick. There have been games where we've seen that, and he's actually had a couple of pretty good performances in the NCAA tournament so far. He actually had 19 points, seven rebounds, four assists. 
eight of 14 shooting from the field against a Michigan state team that I think was just not able to hold him in check as much as I thought they would. Uh, he actually led the entire game in scoring for Duke with 19 points. I think the big thing, if Duke can pull off this win is they are going to have to, they're going to have to get to the line more than Texas tech. I think that's the big thing because you know, I don't think this is going to be a three-point shooting battle. This is not going to be a battle of who can take more jump shots. This is going to be a battle of who can win it down low, who can win it in rebounds, who can win it in points in the paint. I think that that's what this is going to come down to. Yeah, and I think sticking on the topic of Paulo too, like I think one of the bigger things that's really important is that I think he needs to be kind of in takeover mode to a certain extent. This is a guy who I think really, from what I've seen from Paulo Bancaro, when he's a guy who just makes quick decisions, when he gets the ball in the sides, I'm going to play downhill. When he gets the ball in the post in the sides, spin move, get to the basket. When he gets the ball in the sides, what his move is going to be, he makes his read and he commits to it. He's one of the most unstoppable players in college basketball this season. The consistency factor of when he taps into that mindset as the leading player for this team is what's been in question so often. Because at the end of the day, he's been a solid player all season. Nobody's Nobody is refuting that at all. You know what I mean? I, over, I mean, overall, I think Paulo Bancaro has been one of the best, the, probably a top 10 player in college basketball from production standpoint. But I think the biggest thing with him, especially in a run like this against a team like this is you have to have a guy who can just go get it. And Duke has that guy in Paulo, but he has to commit to it because when he does, again, I don't think anybody has the physical tools to be able to line up with him because he can take you inside, outside, play on the perimeter, shoot the three. He has a little bit of everything. Another guy that I think is kind of interesting to maybe keep an eye out on in this one is, is Wendell Moore. He's a guy who I feel like just oddly is due for a big game. I don't know why. I have, I have no reasoning behind it. I'm just being just completely transparent. I think Wendell Moore is due for a big game, and I think we just need the perfect opportunity for it. And in a game where I think a lot of people are not favoring Duke very much. I'm over here looking at the ESPN's basketball power index matchup predictor right now. And it's actually, it actually favors Texas Tech 50, 53.9% to Duke's 46.1. So there's a, a, a very hefty margin to a certain extent that believe that Texas Tech's defense will have a significant impact on Duke and maybe even stifle them. I think if Paulo is aggressive and that do game that Wendell Moore is just kind of waiting to have actually actualizes itself in this matchup. I think Duke might be able to come out with the win. Texas tech one has one hell of a defense, but I think Duke's talent is just hard to argue with. I got to tell you something though, too, Jalen, when you talk about Wendell Moore, 15 points in the last game, didn't shoot a lot from the field, three of six from the field. Mm -hmm. Look at the free throw numbers, because I know I, I mentioned earlier with Texas Tech, Duke is going to have to out physical Texas Tech in the paint. And 
Wendell Moore, nine of 10 from the line. I think that's about as efficient that you can get from the line and how he was able to take advantage of opportunities when he got to the line. I think that's the other thing. I think that's something that Duke can take advantage of and they can exploit down low. Texas Tech is one of the strongest front courts in the country with Kevin O'Banner and Bryson Williams. I just have a feeling this Duke team will do a lot of damage down low. And I don't know if Texas Tech as a strong defensive team can recover from that. Yeah, I think the scary part is if this gets into a physical matchup, whose team has the better capability of getting a bucket? And if that were the case, I would favor Duke. If this strictly becomes a defensive slugfest and you're saying who can get the bucket, that's where things come into play. If it is simply Texas Tech imposing their defensive identity on Duke, that is when I think Texas Tech is the team to go with to take the dub. That is the real question to ask is can Duke defensively match the intensity of Texas Tech? Because if they can do that, we know that offensively they can compete at that level. But if defensively they cannot compete with that physicality, I think that's going to be that's going to mean all the difference. So with that being the case, the two teams out of the West region, because we've got to start moving towards the other region. I know we've been on this one for a little bit. Moving towards the Elite Eight, the two teams you would have going into the Elite Eight would be who? Gonzaga and Duke. Okay. So for me, I'm going to go with Gonzaga and Duke as well. On TikToks and PA and, uh, and other conversations that I've had, I've leaned with Texas Tech. But in the, in the midst of really having this conversation, I don't like Duke. I'm a UNC fan. We all know this. We're about to get to the East region in a second. You're about to find out if you didn't know. If you haven't listened to past episodes, strap in. The Tar Heels will be highlighted significantly in this pod. But there is something about this Duke team and the level of talent that they have where it just seems like getting upset in the Sweet 16 seems too early. Granted, it's not really an upset. Texas Tech Tech, Tech is legit. But it's upsetting with the kind of expectations they have. And I think that's one of those things where I think storyline-wise, they've bumped their heads on the UNC matchup, and they lost in Coach K's last game um, at home. They bumped their heads on the ACC title losing. And it just seems like third time's a charm with all the marbles in the middle of the table. Do you really see them losing in the Sweet 16? Now, Gonzaga, we can talk about that. They've already been Gonzaga once. Can you really beat a team twice? That's a question for another day. But do you really see them falling to Texas Tech in the Sweet 16? As much as I want Duke, as much as I want Duke to lose, I just, I just don't see it. I think it's going to be a really close game, but I'll take Duke. So let's transition to, let's transition to the East region. And I want to get your thoughts on the way the the East region turned out, some of your initial thoughts from the second round, from the first and second round, and just some things that you are looking ahead to. So this region was definitely shocking, to say the least. I think it really started out with the fact that St. Peter's beat Kentucky. I don't know how many people predicted that matchup, but if you did, I commend you because (laughs) I would not have thought about this in a million years that – a team led by one of the best, one of the best players in the country, and Oscar Sheepway, who had one heck of a game, thirty points and sixteen rebounds. They somehow lost to 
St. Peter's. Wow. That's that again, that's baffling to me. Not to mention that St. Peter's also knocked off a great team in Murray State. Murray State was 30 and 2 the entire season, undefeated in conference play. And they didn't even shoot the ball that well in that game. St. Peter's shot 41% from the field and 23% from three. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I think they were able to get contributions from everybody on that team. There was actually, um, I was looking at the box score a moment ago from that St. Peter's Murray State game. Everyone on St. Peter's except for one player had at least two points. So that's sort of an all hands on deck situation and they were able to make it work. And now they're the third team to reach this, the sweet 16 as a 15 seed. So I think that's really impressive. Jalen, I'm going to leave uh, most of the talking for this UNC Baylor game to you. But the one thing I will say is that that Brady man, a technical foul or flagrant two foul was not a flagrant two foul. I don't know what in the world I, again, I'm not a basketball official, but I don't know what in the world constituted that as a, a flagrant two foul. That guy, uh, so- Sochan for Baylor, Jeremy Sochan, he was he's an instigator out there. I don't know. I, he reminds me a lot of like Patrick Beverly, and he just kept getting on UNC's nerves the entire game to the point where the leading scorer up to that point, Brady Manick, who had 26 points, and they had a, a pretty sizable lead on, on Baylor. I think it was a 25-point lead at one point. Brady Manick ends up getting ejected, and that almost instantly turns the tide in favor of Baylor. I, I was just shocked. I thought they, I thought they were going to lose that game. And then Baylor ended up coming back. They take the game to overtime. Not to mention Jalen, your primary ball handler, and Caleb Love fouls out. So it ends up coming down to – R.J. Davis, who connected on a couple of shots. Styles, the freshman for North Carolina, I thought he played pretty well in place of Brady Manick for the most part. He actually hit a three in overtime that gave North Carolina the momentary lead to open up overtime. Armando Baycott, I thought he held his own down low. This was a huge win for North Carolina. I'm actually kind of shocked at a lot of these other games. Purdue making it out of the first round. Last year, they didn't make it out of the first round. They lost to North Texas, and they took care of business in the first round, took care of business in the second round. Definitely thought Virginia Virginia Tech had a chance to pull off the upset against Texas, but give credit to Texas. They, they held their own in that first game, kept it close throughout the entire game against Purdue, but Purdue was able to pull away late. Yeah, I just I, this is another one where there were a couple of big-time upsets but it just seemed like there was business as usual outside of those upsets with a lot of these teams. Bro, so let's start with the UNC Baylor game, bro. My first thought off rip was, like, after the Brady Manning call, I just felt like, wow, we're about to get robbed. That was literally my first thought. I'm like, wow. Didn't even feel as though the call was condonable. And then... It, the run was ridiculous. It got to within like four, I think, late with about four or five minutes left in the in the quarter. And you just felt it slipping away. It just it just felt like one of those things where you could feel the fact that Brady Manic had been pulled out. You could feel kind of the energy of the team kind of sucked out of out of everybody on the squad. 
out of the mere fact that it was like, wow, this is really happening right now. First of all, you got rid of our main dude who's been heating the entire game. And then you follow that up. There was a couple of ticky-tack things with Armando during that stretch as well that I wasn't really a huge fan of. But R.J. Davis got it done, and I think that's very commendable on his front because Caleb Love had a struggling game for 32 for for 32 minutes on the floor. He was kind of a net negative most of the time, um, and I hate saying that about my guy, but like we just got to call a spade a spade. Something else that I I gotta point out is I really fear for this free throw shooting because I think it's going to bite us in the butt at some point, um, specifically with Armando, who was 7 of 15 from the free throw line, which I think is really effective. You talk about having 15 trips to the free throw line is huge. He also had 16 rebounds, which was half. Him alone had half the amount of rebounds that Baylor had as a team. I had said in our preview, I felt like if Armando Baycott could go up against that Baylor front court, his physicality inside would be a huge difference maker for this for this UNC team in terms of coming out with the victory. And it was huge, so much so that it sent them, sent them to the free throw line a lot. And we were able to come out with the victory, but I think we could have actually sealed the victory in, in regulation had we gotten a little bit better uh, production from the free throw line. Um, mainly from Armando, right? Because outside of Armando, we really didn't miss any free throws like that. So that would just be one of my bigger things. Now, going to the rest of the um, going to the rest of the tournament, I mean, going to the rest of the round, specifically in the East, man, I got to be real with you. Everything else kind of felt normal. To me. Now, the only thing I would say that like kind of stands out, obviously, like you mentioned beforehand, is the St. Peter's thing. And that goes back to something I was mentioning earlier was that the difference between St. Peter's and those other 15 seeds that I think is important to note in terms of them being different is that versatility I mentioned earlier. So let's go back to the first two rounds um, of the East. You look at St. Peter's in that first round against Kentucky, and they're able to get into an offensive slugfest with UK, drop 85 points. Then they go up against a Murray State team that just dropped 92 on San Francisco in the first round of dang cells, and they hold that Murray State team to 60? We're talking about one of the better offensive teams in the country, and you hold them to 60 points. I think that that's something, if you remember when we talked about Oral Roberts last year, they were a very one-dimensional team. They were offense-driven. And it came to bite them in the butt when their two lead guys couldn't get, couldn't get baskets and were held in check. I think this is a team that I think get, get it done in a multitude of ways, and I think that makes St. Peter's a lot more dangerous in this next round against Purdue who can't guard a lick, <laughs> if I'm being real with you, and I still feel that way. They are still not very solid on the defensive end, and St. Peter's is capable of putting up points. So I think Purdue should be on the lookout. That's probably the other notable thing that really stood out to me in this region from the first two rounds. So looking at 
the Sweet 16 matchups for this region because you look at North Carolina and UCLA. I think either of those teams can make it to the Elite Eight. St. Peter's and Purdue has upset potential there. And then you look at the statistic of the fact that 15 seeds have not been able to make it past the Sweet 16. The two other teams, like I mentioned earlier, were Florida Gulf Coast and Oral Roberts. Is there the opportunity that this could be the third times a charm case Mm. where St. Peter's, a team that you mentioned, Jalen, offensively, offensively, they were great against Kentucky. Defensively, they held their own against one of the highest scoring teams in the Ohio Valley Conference in, in Murray State. Is this another offensively driven game for St. Peter's? against Purdue because you mentioned Purdue is not the strongest defensive team and you do have questions about if they can hold it down against a, a, a strong offensive team. I think, man, that's such an interesting question. I think the biggest thing so far in this tournament is adaptability. And I think that that's one of those things that's going to really stand out in this matchup where I feel as though the team that punches first, and I think we might end up saying this a lot as we go through, but I think specifically in these kind of, these kind of matchups, the team that punches first and imposes whatever their style of play is on the game the soonest, the earliest, is going to be the team that comes out with the victory. I said this a little bit earlier, talking about Texas Tech versus Duke, right? The idea that if Texas Tech is able to impose their physical defensive play style onto Duke early, and Duke does not positively respond on that end, they're going to get caught. And I think that also factors into this one as well, that specifically like for Purdue, if they do not get out to a early run and, and put a very big emphasis on we're going to play physical inside with Zach Eady, you're not going to be able to touch this kind of size that we have. Travion Williams is going to be a legitimate force on the inside rather than trying to be fancy and step out and take jumpers and things like that because I've said it on past podcasts. I feel like sometimes Travion Williams tries to feel himself a little bit because he knows he's got a little bit of a tool bag. And I like that he has a lot of uh, has a really decent school skill set, but I think sometimes he falls in love with the fact that he has so much in his bag. And then Jay Nivey, if he is a downhill offensive threat, nobody can stop him in the open court. If he's driving towards the basket, he's a guy who has all the moves, the tricks of the trade around the basket. If they play with that kind of focus, this game won't be close. If they are punched in the mouth. My fear is that their defensive liabilities across the court are not going to be enough to positively respond to that, and I think they might get called lacking. That's the one thing that I was thinking about, too, because I think players like Daryl Banks, I think players like Doug Eater have the capability of taking this game and putting it into their hands. That's the offensive aspect of what I saw in the game against Kentucky because Doug Eater had – 20 points coming off the bench. Banks had 27. Then you look at the game against Murray State, a defensive-driven game. No one really stood out in that game offensively, and it just seemed like it was an all-hands-on-deck type of situation where we need everyone 
to shut down Murray State's offense. I could see this game going either way. I think offensively, if Banks and uh, Eater take over early, that's where I think I give this the edge to St. Peter's. Mm. If Travion Williams and Zach Eady can dominate down low quickly, allowing Jaden Ivey to flow and to go with the flow offensively where he is just taking over and slashing. Mm. That's where I think Purdue will have the advantage. I think that that this is just going to be a really tough game to decide who will win at first Mm. because it depends with St. Peter's what type of team you're going to get. So uh, I guess I guess we're technically in the midst of making our picks because we've been focusing very specifically on this Purdue St. Peter's matchup. Um, one of the things I'm just gonna say this right now when we talk about Purdue, I'm picking Purdue to win. I think they're gonna halt St. Peter's. I think they're gonna get it done. And the way I'm gonna also put it is, when Purdue wins, because I feel very confident in that. Because if they do what I'm about to say, they'll get it done. When Purdue wins, it will be because of Zach Eady. If Zach Eady imposes his physicality on the inside and they play through Zach, Jay Nivey will get looks. Travion Williams will get looks. But Zach Eady on both ends of the floor will have, an, have a significant impact on how this game goes. Whether Purdue wins or loses, the play of Zach Eady, I think, will determine Purdue's fate moving forward. With that, Let's transition over to UNC and UCLA real quick. UCLA had a lot of expectations coming into the season. Didn't win the Pac-12. They left that up to Arizona to get that job done. But they're still the team that was one of the Cinderella squads of last season. And they're a team that's handled business so far this year. They're going up against my Tar Heels. They couldn't have a more contrasting style to the Tar Heels. The Tar Heels. Lean on the play of Armando Baycott inside. And if RJ Cole, um, if RJ Davis, excuse me, uh, Caleb, um, Caleb and Brady Manick are hitting their threes, we're firing all cylinders. As opposed to UCLA, they lean very heavily on the guard play. Johnny Juzang, um, uh, Jame Hawkes, even Tiger Campbell is one of those guys you have to be careful of in a winner go home scenario like this because he's due for a game any given day. So who do you have in UNC versus UCLA? And um, what are some things you're looking out for? So when you talk about that interior matchup, I think what's going to be so interesting is to see Armando Baycott versus Cody Riley. I think it'll be interesting to see how Armando Baycott plays against Cody Riley, because Cody Riley's another physical big man down low. I think it could be a, a tough challenge for Armando Baycott. I think he will hold his own, though. I think what North Carolina has to do is to outshoot UCLA. What do I mean by that? RJ Davis and Brady Manick, the duo that we saw in the game against Baylor, we need to see that type of shooting against UCLA because Johnny Juzang, Tiger Campbell, Hami Haquez, they're going to shoot the ball when they get it, whether it's catch and shoot off the dribble. They're going to take that opportunity to shoot. So if Brady Manick and RJ Davis can outshoot UCLA, then I think North Carolina can find themselves 
in the midst of winning this game. With that being said, I think it's going to be tough, but I'm going to take the upset and take North Carolina. There's something special about this North Carolina team. If Armando Baycock can win inside, that really helps things. But you pretty much have to count on RJ Davis and Brady Manick outshooting UCLA. So with that all being said, I'm I, you already know what I'm going to do. I'm, at this point, I've said this off the podcast when we were talking a little bit earlier, and I think I'm just going to kind of roll with that thought process is that like, I'm just going to roll with the, with the Tar Heels until the wheels fall off, bro. If there's a circumstance where UCLA gets it done, all power to them. But like you said beforehand, it's something about this UNC team so far this season that's played really well when the chips are in the middle of the table. And granted, I don't think their ACC tournament performance was very representational of that. But I do think that this is a team, especially with that win over Baylor, has shown a little bit more fight heading into the tournament. And I think that Baylor win is going to give them a lot of confidence because, again, they did that with Brady Manick being ejected wrongfully. They did it with losing Caleb Love in that game. But even without losing Caleb, right, Caleb Love didn't play well in that game and they were able to survive Baylor. I think the fact that that's, that, that's stuff they can hang their hat on only gives them more confidence going up against this UCLA team. So, you know me, I'm going to go with UNC, and I feel really confident about them. I've been teasing the idea of UNC to the Final Four on, on Twitter and Instagram a little bit. I'm going to I'm gonna lean into that and, and really see what type of damage they do against UCLA. We're going to try to move a little bit faster throughout these next two regions. Um, oddly enough, there wasn't too much crazy stuff left over. Um, in these next two regions anyway, I would say the South is probably the one, um, excuse me, the Midwest is probably the one that has the most interesting stuff left over. Um, but let's talk about the South region real quick and, um, kind of look at what we have ahead for that, for that. Cause there's some pretty intriguing matchups, one involving Michigan. So I want to start off by saying that Arizona escaped TCU. And I'm going to use the word escape because that game went down to the wire and then when it went to overtime and Jalen, if you want to provide your input on this, you can. That call or non-call where Mike Miles fell at, at midcourt with two seconds to go. Again, I'm not a basketball official, but I don't know if there should have been a no call on that one. And that could have definitely turned the tide. I think that could, that that might have resulted in like two TCU free throws, if I'm not mistaken. But nonetheless, commend TCU because Mike Miles played great, even though he didn't shoot the ball well. He shot five of twenty from the field, took advantage of every opportunity from the, from the line, going nine of nine. Can we give more credit though to this TCU front court of Eddie Lampkin and Chuck O'Bannon? A combined. 43 points for them. And you want to talk about taking advantage of the offensive glass, 13 combined offensive rebounds between those two. And TCU in the entire game had 20. They out-rebounded Arizona on the offensive glass 20 to 14. And I think that definitely, that definitely was something that TCU exploited in that game. So give credit to TCU. Christian Coloco, I thought, had a great game. 28 points, 12 rebounds, three blocks. He was phenomenal. 30 points from Ben Matherin. I think he's definitely 
trying to rise his draft stock as well. I thought he had a great game. He just came in clutch for them when they needed him to. And he hit a couple of shots down the stretch that definitely turned the tide. Michigan, I'm just shocked that they right. I, that they made it this far. Hunter Dickinson and Eli Brooks in that game against Tennessee, they were great. Hunter Dickinson just looks more and more unstoppable every time I watch him. Jalen, you might go on a rant about this, but Caleb Houston, I think he just he he just needs he needs to do more for them. 13 points in the first game against Colorado State, zero in the game against Tennessee. There wasn't that much else that happened. I mean, give credit to Houston because, again, I I think a lot of people picked them to lose in the first round. Mm -hmm. Houston held their own against UAB, played great against Illinois. I have to apologize to Houston because I picked against them in my game of the in my game of the day predictions. I picked UAB over Houston. They're really overcoming their their injuries. They lose Marcus Sasser. They lose Tremont Mark early in the season. Two of their top players. Tajay Moore, heck of a game against Illinois. Fabian White has been playing great up to this point in the season, too, as a as a front court presence. But other than that, again, I think business as usual outside of the uh the the great games and upsets that we've seen yeah and i mean just one other thing to note with the arizona game is our Ar- arzulis tubelis remember ace brought him up as being a real x factor for that team um if arizona looks on make looks to make a a run to the final four he played 16 minutes in that game didn't play too too well five points four rebounds two of seven from the floor but i think it is encouraging or should be encouraging that he was able to give them some solid rotational value um, I think outside of that, again, like you said before, this was a for for this region in particular, this was a bit of a business as as usual um kind of thing. Michigan is probably the only one that really stands out in terms of their run. And when it comes to Caleb Houston, that volatility that you mentioned, right? 13 in the first game, zero in the second. That's that kind of stuff that makes him a very worrisome prospect. This is a guy who I think maybe he'll go maybe. Maybe he'll uh, go. Um, maybe he'll go back to school. Hopefully, he'll go back to school. I'd actually like make that kind of suggestion. Right now, he's slotted around being a second round pick midway through the second round, and I just don't see anything translatable about it right now that looks like it's going to vault him any further. Now he's still got some time. Obviously he's in the sweet 16 and it, the, the stage is only becoming bigger and bigger and the bright, the lights are only getting brighter and brighter. And I think he only needs one really good game for people to say, that's the potential we saw at the start of the season. That's why you get him in the late first round or you grab him in the early second round. That's how, that that's what establishes yourself as somebody who, is going to be a legit draft pick in the 2022 drafts coming up. Um, but other than that, Michigan has just been a Cinderella story, excuse me, just out of the mere fact that I didn't pick them against Colorado State. I dang sure wasn't picking them against Tennessee. I told you I had Tennessee going pretty far because I thought Tennessee was one of the most dangerous three seeds in the entire tourney. So at this point, you know, I feel as though. The one team, there's I guess there's two big teams to really commend from this region um, moving forward, and that's Houston, who, like you said before, has really thrived in spite of their injuries. And I think that we were worried about, like, 
who have they really beat outside of their conference to make you feel as though they're going to be a legit title contender? Well, once you take down Illinois, questionable call in that game as well, but once you take down Illinois, I think that's the kind of confidence enhancer that you need in order to be able to tell yourself that you can really hang. Arizona is going to be one hell of a test. I would pick Arizona to beat them, but I would not be shocked if Houston won the game. Now, Michigan versus Villanova, I think a lot of people want to ride the wave that Michigan is on. I believe that Jay Wright and the Wildcats will, will, will play the humble card. So for me, if I'm going to drop my picks right now, I'm going to pick Villanova and Arizona to come um, out of that and go to the Elite Eight. How about you? So for me, I'm, go I'm going to agree with both your picks. I think Arizona could handle business against Houston. I could see this one getting a little bit closer, much like the TCU game where it comes down to the final couple of minutes. TCU or, or Houston has a like two-point lead and Arizona finds a way to come back. I think Christian Coloco is going to need to bring that same energy to the Sweet 16 because he, he can be a defensive force down low, and I think he has that capability of doing it against this Houston front court. For Michigan and Villanova, I think Villanova will take care of business as well. I think Colin Gillespie, Jermaine Samuels, they'll take care of business for Villanova. Michigan, you had one heck of a ride. I think it ends here. I I fare with you on that one. I wouldn't be shocked just with the way that Michigan's been going if they get it done, but I just feel like Villanova is very sound. They're a lot better than the other two teams that they played. Um, and I just believe in Colin Gillespie, believe it or not, in this kind of environment um, where I think the guard play is going to be so important in a matchup like this. Um, because I understand who Hunter Dickinson is, but I feel like the guard play of Michigan is going to have to match the guard play of Villanova, and I don't think they will be able to, especially if Caleb Houston has been playing, is going to continue to play like how he did in the last game. So um, I got Villanova. Uh, let's go to this Midwest region. And this is where my bracket got all types of busted up. Um, Iowa losing to Richmond. That one was wild. I loved Providence all year. And I had them getting past um, South Dakota State despite all my fears. But I thought they were going to have to see Iowa in the next round. So I, of course, picked Iowa in that case because I figured Iowa's offense and the fact that Keegan Murray is so elite as an offensive player, was going to matter a lot more than the fact that Providence is good at keeping games close. We probably should have seen Iowa State versus LSU going Iowa State's way. LSU didn't have a head coach due to, due to off-court circumstances. Um, Iowa State beating Wisconsin was huge, but I think that was more telling towards just how um, – difficult it was or is for this Wisconsin team as constructed to win ball games if Johnny Davis is not on one. <laughs> if Johnny Davis is not elite Johnny Davis, it's very hard for this Wisconsin team to come out with victories. I said Miami. I said Miami. When we did the preview, I said Miami would beat USC. And if they saw Auburn, I would really fear Auburn, if I were Auburn, I would really fear Miami because Miami got them boys. And I mentioned a set of circumstances where Isaiah Wong and them guys could get it done. And Isaiah Wong went for 21 points 
and six rebounds. We got a really good game from Cameron Mugusty, who had 20.6 rebounds, four assists of his own. I mean, I I said it when it came to when it came to Miami. Of all the ACC teams, they were the team I was actually oddly enough the most confident in. They even got 15, 9, and 8 from Charlie Moore. Just an overall solid performance from their starting lineup, getting the job done. And 79 to 61 might have been the score, but I honestly believe with the way they played, that might even have still been too close. But at the end of the day, bro, the guard-to-guard matchup between Miami and Auburn determined that game exactly as I said it would. And now Miami's in the Sweet 16. Your thoughts? Jalen, I don't think you're telling the full story with this game. This defense for Miami is for real. And this is a defense that could take them to the Elite Eight. I, I have high hopes that there's a chance that this team can go to the Elite Eight. Let's talk about the fact that Miami had 10 steals in this game. Cameron McGusty had four. Charlie Moore had two steals or three steals. Jordan Miller had two steals. Isaiah Wong had one steal. 10 steals as a team. They only turned the ball over four times, Jalen. The assist to turnover ratio. They had 19 assists compared to four turnovers. Auburn, 11 assists, 13 turnovers. Now, Miami did not shoot the ball as well as I thought they would in this game. They shot 49% from the field as a team, which I think is pretty good. 20% from three, which is not great. But you look at how Auburn fared in this game offensively. Auburn as a team shot 30% from the field, 19% from three. Let's look at some individual performances. Walker Kessler scored his only two points in the game from the free throw line. Jabari Smith had a double-double, 10 points and 15 rebounds, but he had to work hard to get that double-double. Three of 16 from the field, one of eight from three. Johnson as well. Uh, Katie Johnson, 12 points in this game, four of 10 from the field. One of six from three for Katie Johnson. Those were... uh, three of their top players in this game. And they were pretty much held in check, Jalen. Like, I think, I don't think this Miami defense gets enough credit for how good they are. And the sneaky team that we thought of in this tournament was Miami. Mm -hmm. We knew there was something, we knew there was something with Miami. We just didn't know what it was. This was it. This upset over Auburn, who, I definitely had some doubts about, but I thought they were going to make it to the Sweet 16. They get eliminated by Miami, and there was just something about this team all year, and now they're in the Sweet 16 and could very well find themselves in the Elite Eight. Yeah, and I want to make another comment based on some of the stuff that you brought up, too. Like, I think one of the more important things to note about this game when you talk about the defensive matchup that they had was also the fact that they were able to thrive playing small. And it literally forced Auburn into not being able to play Walker Kessler. 13 minutes for a guy who's going to go in the top 25 of the NBA draft. 13 minutes. He was virtually unplayable because the small guard, the small four guard lineup 
four guard lineup, Ryan, for Miami, literally forced Auburn out of playing big. It also forced them to play Wendell Green Jr. a lot more. And guess what, Ryan? If you need any, if you need anything to tell you how this game was won by Miami, here's how you tell. Here's how you how, here's how you tell the story. Katie Johnson, twelve points. Wendell Green, eleven points. Combines for twenty three points on eight of twenty four shooting. Two of 12 from three. Isaiah Wong had 21 points by himself. Eight of 18 from the floor. Only missed, it missed his only three-pointer. Isaiah Wong by himself outplayed the Auburn backcourt. And what did we say? With the erratic play of the Auburn backcourt, if they did not play the up-tempo, high-energy. Let me rephrase this. If those two did not play under control, this Auburn team would hurt if they ran into the right backcourt that exploited them. Mcgusty and Wong combined for 41. Katie Johnson and Wendell Green combined for 20. That should tell you the ballgame. That's enough to tell you how this game went. So for me, Miami is one of the most dangerous teams left in the Sweet 16. I understand Gonzaga. I get Duke. I get Arizona. But I think Miami might be the team that everybody needs to switch eyeballs onto because they might be that team in the midst of all of this that's not getting all the chirps but might actually be the team in the final four. Now, maybe this doesn't age well, but from what I've seen, I think it's, I, I think they're going to be a team that we need to start recognizing early before they mess around, end up in the final four, and everybody's second-guessing themselves. Well, I think their road to the final four is tough because I think they can get there, but they have to get through Iowa State, who just knocked off Wisconsin. They have a great guard in Isaiah Brockington, who's been phenomenal this season. The winner of that game has to take on the winner of Kansas and Providence. Now, Jalen, I know you're a fan of Providence. I'm very confused on what's going on because too. Providence was a team that we were, were we really like, but we're not completely sold on. Right. They go and they win in the round of 64 and they win in the round of 32 now they have to play Kansas i'm not sure who i would take in this game given what i saw from Kansas in the Creighton game i don't know who i would take i i'm i i think the jury's still out on that game but um if you do you have any picks for any of the games so far so in the Miami versus Iowa State game, I'm taking Miami. I, I understand Isaiah Brockington, but I feel like the overall guard depth that Miami has, I think they're going to be able to throw a handful of different bodies at him. And they're in a position where I think with that small ball lineup, they are just going to be able to run and gun, and they do really well at just that. And Iowa State is one of those teams that I fear if Miami moves, like speeds them up, 
to their pace, Miami will run them out the gym. Now, I don't think this is going to be a blowout. I don't know if it'll turn into that. But this is this is a Miami team that I think when they are allowed to play at their pace, they ain't no fooling with them. We just saw them blow out Auburn by 18 points. If they are allowed to play at their pace, they can turn up in a heartbeat. But the thing that gets me is with this Providence-KU game, you have KU who's coming off of a close win over Creighton after blowing out Texas Southern. And you have Providence, who is coming out red hot, blowing out San Diego, uh, South Dakota State, excuse me, holding them to 57 points, which ain't no slouch. Again, we kept harping on them all preview about how they're literally the best three-point shooting team in the country. And then hold Richmond to 51. And they dropped nearly 80 on Richmond, who was a pretty solid, solid defensive team. So, Ryan, I said this with the Tar Heels. And I think I'm going to say it with Providence, man. I think I'm just going to go down with the ship. I think I'm taking Providence to win this game against Kansas, bro. I've had my waxes and wanes with this Providence team. But every time I doubt them, they show me why I started believing in them in the first place. I don't know if it's Algie Durham. I don't know who it is on this team that is going to be the one to help pull this game out against KU that has Ojai Abaji playing out of his mind at the moment. But I have this weird feeling, Ryan, that Providence is going to win this game and I'm going to go down with the ship. So I got Miami and I got Providence moving on to the Elite. So I agree with Miami. I think defensively, they're a stronger defensive team over Iowa State. And I think they have so many defensive schemes that it's going to make it very difficult for Iowa State to keep up. And I think the turnover battle is going to be in favor of Miami. I think they'll definitely get a lot of steals in this game. I'll say the over-under for me would be eight. I think I could see Charlie Moore and Cameron McGusty having two each. I think it's just going to overwhelm Iowa State's offense. This Kansas-Providence game, I think, is the most tricky because I've seen enough from Providence where I think they can get to the Elite Eight in their past two games, and offensively, they've stepped up. But Kansas... Kansas, I think, is a is a great basketball team. But I'm worried in a one-game scenario that Providence is going to take them to a close game that Providence ends up winning. Jalen, I'm going to stick with you on this one, and I hope I'm right. Because <laughs> this oh, Kansas man. team, this Kansas team has the potential to make the championship. With guys like Christian Braun, uh, Ochai Abaji, I mean, th- this team is talented. You know, Joseph Yosefu and Remy Martin, I think they could have – I think they could individually have pretty good games. Mm-hmm. There's just something about this Providence team that I with, – with how, with how crazy this NCAA tournament has been so far, we could see a 4-10 matchup. So, I think Horchler 
has been solid the entire season. The backcourt duo of Durham and Reeves, they have the potential to take over. I think if they make this a close game, it's it, it, I'm going with Providence, Jalen. If this is a close game, it's Providence. So I feel like this is going to be a weird matchup to highlight, but I would just say that the one thing that I'm keeping my eye on that I think could be a legitimate determination of whether this game goes in Providence's favor or Kansas's favor. Whoever plays better out of Remy Martin and Jared Bynum will win this game. I don't know why that has so much influence on the game overall. I just think that both of these teams are not like not afraid to go to their bench guys if they have a hot hand. And I think whichever of the two, because Remy Martin's been excellent over the last couple of games, but Jared Bynum has been pretty solid all season as well. Whichever one of those two is able to play better, I think is going to be really important because I think with A.J. Reeves, Algie Durham, Nate Watson, even Horschler as well, I think their starting lineup will be able to hang with guys like Braun and Oshai. But I think that Remy Martin versus Jared Bynum element could be a really important factor in, in just like big shot energy, closing the game out, overall momentum swings. They're both two guys who like can who can really get on a heater or just hit a specific shot at a specific time that can flip the script in a ball game. And so I would watch out for Remy Martin and Jared Bynum because one of those two guys is going to snap in this game, and I think it's going to have a lot of weight on who the winner of this game is. But, Ryan, we're pretty much finished with the bracket. Uh, Appreciate everybody to listen to us. I understand this might have been a little struggle bussy, but you got to realize two rounds of March Madness is insane. And there's a ton of matchups going on and a ton of upsets that I don't think me and Ryan could have possibly anticipated. But Ryan, with that being the case, what are some of your final thoughts as we head into the Sweet 16 and Elite Eight rounds? The teams are only going to continue to wane. And at this point, it's kind of hard to say there's too many upsets left potentially, but there are still a lot of potential games that could leave us wondering even more who the champion is. I think I think after the Elite Eight, we could still be scratching our head without a definitive pick on who we feel like is going to come out with the chip. Jalen, the only thing I'm going to say is this. Don't be surprised if something crazy happens in this NCAA tournament because I have a feeling one of these lower-seeded teams is going to make it to the Final Four. Ooh, okay. If you had to pick, who would it be? That's a tough one too, because I think there's. Miami. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go in my. I'm gonna go with my gut and say Miami because they are rolling with so much momentum. Their defense is unstoppable right now, and I think that if Miami were to beat Iowa State, they could give a team like Kansas or Providence a run for their money offensively. I just think defensively, this is a team in Miami that has been able to hold their own against the top teams in the in the NCAA. 
They beat Duke earlier in the season. They just have that sneaky capability that they can be a lower-seeded team like a VCU from 2011 or a George Mason from 2006 where they can just get to the NCAA tournament and make a run and take one skill set and just utilize it to their success. I mean, their defense has been their go-to success this entire season. This four-guard lineup is, is one of the reasons why they've been so successful. So I think that this that they could be the reason. Those two things that I just mentioned, their defense and their four-guard lineup, they could be reasons why they make it to the Final Four. For me, I think my if we're talking about double digit seeds out of them in St. Peter's, I think I'm picking Miami. But of all the low seeds, you already know the vibes, man. I'm sticking with UNC at the eight seed spot. I would say watch out for Michigan, even though I have them losing to Nova. I would say watch out just out of the mere fact that we've already seen them do a lot more than we expected. Again, me and you agreed. Like we were wonky on whether or not they deserve to be as safe as they were in terms of the seeding. We thought they were a, a, a final, like a first four-in team um, coming into the tournament. So for them to do, we we thought they were a first four-in team, and that's how it went, obviously. But, like, they've obviously outplayed that significantly. And you just never know with the way Hunter Dickinson has been playing as well. But obviously, I'm going to roll with my guys with the Tar Heels. I think if I had to pick a lower seed that could make it all the way to the final four, I'm rolling with UNC. But sticking with sticking with Miami, man, that that that's a team to to fear. Ryan, I think it's so funny. We brought this up off camera, and we're about to shut it down in a second. But we brought this off camera, and I thought it was so funny. We talked so crazy about the ACC all year, and now we we have it where the ACC has three teams in the Sweet Sixteen. Notre Dame won in the first round. And we're talking about a potential setup where we could potentially, potentially have a final four that involves three ACC teams. Man, how the tides have turned. Jalen, I don't want to like call anything, but imagine a final four that features Duke and North Carolina. That would be incredible. I mean, what what a fitting conclusion that's Duke and North Carolina in the Final Four in Coach K's last season. Right. Not oh. saying I'm calling anything, but <laughs> there's a chance. Right, right. So, yeah, man, so I'm going to pass it to you to get us up out of here and shut things down. But, I mean, look, man, insane tournament so far. First weekend was nuts. The games are only becoming higher stakes. We're coming with higher stakes, and they're only going to be more competitive with the fact that these guys, I mean, we're, we're coming down to the best of the best in these groups now. So it's going to be really interesting to see how this weekend goes, bro. But get us up out of here, man. We already talked enough college basketball. I know we could go on for another hour, but, you know, we got to get up out of here. Transitioning to our question of the day for our fans, which team do you think will be the biggest surprise heading into the final four. This has been a great episode today on the Hoop Talk podcast. Of course, make sure we subscribe to us on Apple. You rate our podcast five stars and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. We'll see you guys next episode. Peace.